Hello and welcome to Voicebox, your weekly guide on public radio and podcast to the human voice and the best of the vocal music scene. I'm your host, Chloe Veltman, and it's smashing to be here with you tonight once again. These are exciting and challenging times for the music industry. Thanks to advances in technology, recording and sharing music has never been easier or more global. But on the flip side, earning a living through music has become much harder, particularly for artists trying to launch their careers and those that attempt to support them. On tonight's show, we're going to be exploring the shifting dynamics of the music marketplace with the help of two people, the Bay Area-based independent record label owners Peter Warshawski and Avi Ehrlich, who devote their time to packaging and promoting the work of musicians, and many of the performers on their books are singers. Hi Peter and Avi, thanks for coming into the studio this evening. Hi, Chloe. Hello. Thanks for having us. Peter Warshawski runs Porto Franco Records, a label that looks after a broad range of vocal music talent, from the indie boy-girl pop duo Ramon and Jessica, to the eclectic Americana sounds of Mark Rowden, to the soulful-voiced Miklit Hadero. Meanwhile, Avi Ehrlich's Silver Sprocket Bicycle Club label focuses on punk bands, a genre with many different sub-styles. Avi's artistic roster includes Larry and his flasks and the Phenomenauts. Let's kick off tonight's show by listening to a couple of tracks, one from each label. First up, we'll hear At the Beginning of the End of the Empire, an a cappella track by Ramon and Jessica, and they work with Peter Vashavsky. And then we'll be following that track up with Get Me Away From Here, I'm Dying by the Tiger Milks, which is a band under Avi Arlick's Silver Sprocket label. At the beginning of the end of the empire, I was a paper seller, a fortune teller, a two-bit criminal. I was a bump time taker of temperatures, a temporary Successful or be us With our winning smiles and a hunt With our catchy tunes and words Now we're photogenic, you know We don't stand a chance If you've just joined us, welcome. I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox, Public Radio's weekly series about the human voice. Voicebox is available as a free weekly podcast on iTunes and at voicebox-media.org. 
On tonight's show, we're looking at indie record labels. My guests are Peter Warshawski, the owner of Porto Franco Records, and Avi Ehrlich, who heads up Silver Sprocket. The two tracks we just heard were At the Beginning of the End of the Empire by Ramon and Jessica, and Get Me Away From Here, I'm Dying, a cover of a Bell and Sebastian track by the Tiger Milks. Tonight's in-studio guests have worked with these artists. So Peter and Avi, I'd like to kick off the discussion by finding out a bit about your backgrounds. Why did you decide to found your record labels and how did you start out? Tell us your stories. Avi first. All right. Um, my story is so weird. Um, I was a, a teenager. I was uh, 12 or 13 years old and uh, I was doing uh, websites because I was a, a big nerd and uh, I ended up somehow working for some some other bands uh, like Less Than Jake and Fueled by Ramen Records just doing their websites. And then um, I saw the kind of work they were doing for their bands and it looked really fun and I had friends who were in bands that I thought uh, should have had records out. Uh, in hindsight, they probably really shouldn't have, but it looked easy enough and fun enough so I just kind of went went ahead and did it. Um, I never meant to start a record label. It just kind of happened by accident. And um, and here I am 15 years later. <laughs> okay. What about you, Peter? Uh, I uh, was a fan of a very wide variety of musicians in San Francisco shortly after moving here. And I met a lot of them just by going to shows. And then my parents moved to San Francisco and they became fans of the music scene. And uh, my father wanted to do something that would support the music scene. And our first idea was a venue, and then we couldn't find a place that really inspired us. We decided to try a record label. And um, the idea behind the label was that we were to be absolutely eclectic. So you would have avant-garde jazz, old-timey jazz, Balkan brass, almost any kind of music that we knew. And uh, the other idea was that we would offer really good contracts to musicians. And uh, there was a lot of interest because people trusted us because they knew us socially. And so within a year, we had a roster of about uh, 10 projects. And in the next two years, it expanded to about 30. And um, yeah, we just kind of launched and tried to do whatever we thought was useful for them. And that evolved over the last three years. So just tell us, where are you from? I'm from Russia. Which part? St. Petersburg, a beautiful town with some wonderful music, great music history. It is. And when did you arrive in the Bay Area? Uh, The Bay Area about 13 years ago. Uh Uh, I spent a couple of years in exile in Los Angeles going to UCLA, but I'm Uh back. Okay. Avi, are you from the Bay Area? Uh, Yeah, born and raised within 100 miles of here. Okay. Um, I'd like to ask you about the names of your record labels, uh, Silver Sprocket and Porto Franco. And I know Silver Sprocket was called Springman Records until fairly recently, right? Uh, Yeah, I kind of um, got really burnt out on Springman Records and took about a year off and then I started Silver Sprocket as um, I kind of feel that record labels are obsolete and stupid and now I kind of find myself doing almost all of the jobs I did back at Springman Records but um, it's uh, a different kind of a, a branding and um, a different kind of a vibe and ethic like it's a lot more um, more project based and more social and, and there's bands that I that identify as being on the roster who don't even have records on the label but are part of the kind of community and social scene and um, it's just kind of a different vibe to it. Why Silver Sprocket Bicycle Club? Um, part of that, uh, I I was li- I was uh, going to college in Sacramento at the time, and um, there in in towns outside of San Francisco, uh, car culture is a big thing. And um, as kind of an activist and environmentalist, and also uh, it just kind of socially and politically, I I really wanted to advocate uh, bicycle use and make bicycles really cool within the community I was working with, and. Uh, do you ever have people coming to your front door looking for bicycle parts? 
Well, I do live next door to uh, the Valencia Cyclery, so um, uh-huh. it's kind of cool. My we have a, a basement that we put on punk rock shows in, and have do run everything out of, and we have we have a we're right next door to a record store and a bicycle store, so it's totally perfect. But um, we do a lot of uh, things with bike riding, like we we have rides and um, like we we all do ride bikes everywhere we go, and we have like bicycle club jackets that we wear, and we um, it's not just a name. Okay. Well, what about Porto Franco Records? Where does that name come from, Peter? Porto Franco means a free port. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a term that was used a lot in the last century, 19th century. The century uh, before last. The century mean. before last. Uh, and um, the idea is in most ports with a lot of international trade, you would have kind of relaxed jurisdiction because otherwise nothing would ever get done if there were a lot of bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And uh, that relaxed jurisdiction usually bred a really lively culture uh, because so much goods and ideas and people would be always coming through. And so we just thought that would be a nice, uh, nice analogy. Let's talk about the then and the now, because I know you both have been through quite a lot with your record labels. Can you tell me what was the landscape like for record labels back when you started out versus what it's like now? Well, back then people bought records. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, I think back in the day, record labels kind of gambled on bands. They would sign a lot of bands and uh, invest uh, a significant amount of money and human resources in trying to get that band to catch on. And uh, the investment was they would uh, produce the records, pay for the production costs, pay for promotion, which would include, um, in big cases, uh, commercial radio and uh, uh, big advertisement. And uh, that could easily run into hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. And uh, with that much saturation, bands that did catch on usually caught on big and uh, made a lot of money. And uh, the label model was that the labels gave artists very little money back for a long time. And because of that, they could afford a lot of failures because of the successes, uh, the labels kept most of the profits. that has completely changed because the labels can't afford to gamble on music so much anymore because Mm. so many more gambles are failures Mm. and the successes don't bring in the profit as much. And so now labels are trying to be much more varied uh, and kind of find a way to be useful in ways other than just putting money forward. Now, the two titles of the tracks that we heard a few minutes ago, Get Me Away From Here, I'm Dying, and The Beginning of the End of the Empire, seem uncannily appropriate for a discussion about what it's like to be running a record label in these times, right? It's very sly of you. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Does the world still need record labels? Um, The world still needs record labels, uh, and uh, some people would argue that it doesn't. And for those people, those people don't need record labels, but there's a lot of artists who uh, have what it takes to completely take care of their own business, and they can be tremendously successful on their own. But for those artists, there's also artists who would really appreciate the help from an organization, Mm -hmm. uh, both in terms of financing or uh, human resources. And uh, those artists could do much better on labels. Do you think the shifts in the ways that people are consuming music have been easier for the independent record labels to deal with compared to the major labels? Oh, absolutely. Uh, The major labels' entire business model is entrenched in the old system of doing things. And uh, being such big companies, it was difficult for them to turn around. Um, But yeah, I would say so. And as an independent label, it was really easy for us to just start putting our bands like T-shirts and posters and merchandise right on our online stores. 
uh, right alongside the records uh, just as soon as that was relevant. I find that there is the phrase that I read somewhere that I really, really liked, and that was, music has stopped being the economy of scarcity. Uh, and uh, the labels, big labels for a long time, and many of them still are operating on the assumption that it is. That is, if you can make music impossible to find in any other way than paying a dollar for a track, then you'll get everybody to pay the dollar for the track. And in reality, there's so much music out there that is so easy to access that people are not any longer spending money because there's no other way to access it. They're spending money because because they want to. And uh, big labels have had a very hard time accepting that fact. tuned into voice box with me chloe veltman don't forget you can access our free podcasts playlists and all kinds of other information about our series at voicebox-media.org the track we just heard was i know i've been changed by latosha brown brown isn't the only one who knows she's been changed the music industry knows it too which is the subject of tonight's discussion with indie record label owners peter vashavsky and avi ehrlich Peter, Latosha Brown illustrates the new strategy in some ways of Porto Franco Records. Tell us about your work with this artist and how it departed from the old ways in which an indie record label would typically collaborate with its clients. Uh, well, last year, uh, Mark Groudon was recording an album in uh, New Orleans. And uh, a few months before that, I decided that I am actually going to try to do a completely different approach to marketing for the label. The approach was uh, to try to utilize the talents that I actually have personally rather than trying to do something that is defined as a record label activity. Uh-huh. And uh, I can shoot and edit video and I am a photographer. And uh, I figured that with those things I could start a video series without spending any additional money on it. And I could feature a lot of musicians on the label and I could feature a lot of musicians who are not on the label but whom I'd like to support. Uh, and um, this song, so by the time we recorded this song, we had about maybe three or four episodes out. We were about a month old as a video series, and we recorded this in um, um, during a day off of, uh, of a recording session. And uh, about a month after we put it on YouTube, uh, it was featured on YouTube's homepage, and it blew up to about a million and a hundred thousand views wow. in about four days. It's amazing. Uh, which was staggering. It, it was like... I've never had any kind of um, success in terms of any web traffic or any mm-hmm. other metrics on, on this level. And that really gave me confidence that that approach could be really interesting. Avi, you're using a lot of video these days too. Why is video such an important component of an independent record label's work? And, and can you talk us through one or two video projects that you've worked on recently? We've, we do make a lot of videos, like when we put out a Big D and the Kids Tables album called How It Goes back in like the early 2000s, um, we made a music video for every single song on the album. And um, 
it was just a cool way to keep reminding everyone that the band existed and just it was really fun to do and we didn't really spend much money on it but we made a bunch of we made something like 25 really fun videos and um every six weeks we'd have a new video to send out to all the blogs and all the websites and posting on our internet presences and it just kept us interesting and relevant in our audience's minds and uh yeah it was just fun to do i would like to add another thing about video is uh it in a way just sits there collecting audiences forever. Uh, if you uh, put out an album, the album just kind of, it gets some attention from the press and from fans, and then it becomes an old record. If you have videos on YouTube, uh, then people will find those videos through all sorts of different channels, friend recommendations, automatic recommendations, and in a way you're playing to new audiences every day. And that can almost re uh, replace touring and uh, other ways of finding audiences. Now, videos are just one way that record labels are helping artists to reach more people these days. Let's turn our attention to the related topic of social media. Here's a track from Larry and His Flask, a band on Avi's label, Silver Sprocket. The track is entitled Call It What You Will, and its popularity owes a great deal to the good old word of mouth. This is Voicebox and I'm Chloe Veltman. I'm in the studio with Avi Ehrlich and Peter Warshawski, who run indie record labels in the Bay Area. Voicebox is available as a free weekly podcast on iTunes and at voicebox-media.org, where you can also find loads of great information about our series, including playlists and schedules. The track we just heard, Call It What You Will, comes from Larry and His Flask, a punk band on the Silver Sprocket Bicycle Club label, which is run by Avi Ehrlich. And my other guest, Peter Warshawski, runs the indie record label Porto Franco Records. Avi, how important is social media to a band like Larry and His Flask? Um, I would say it's vital because it allows uh, the band and us to communicate directly with our fans uh, without any intermediaries. Right now, there are about 18,000 mm -hmm. uh, fans on Facebook, if, if that's a metric <laughs> to is be that, using. Is that respectable for a band like them? or um, it, It's among the, the top for bands on my label that I'm working with. So, uh, yeah, I would say so. Mm -hmm. it, it's very respectable. Okay. Um, so I gather that when your physical distribution company went bankrupt, you were still able to sell the band's music thanks to Facebook. Can you tell us about what happened there? Oh, yeah. Well, um, right now the music industry is totally messed up, and uh, we had a distribution company go bankrupt, owing us a tremendous amount of money that I never got back. But mm. um, but we run our own mail order operation out of my basement, and uh, we, were, we were unable to get the record into stores, so we just posted on the website, like, hey, the only way you can get this record right now is uh, by mail order or at live shows. And then we just got way more mail orders than we've ever gotten for anything, um, pretty much almost exclusively from people clicking the links on Facebook. Wow, that's amazing. Was it very difficult to fulfill those orders? I have a bunch of friends who come in and help out. We have uh, mail orders sent packaging parties, and uh, we have pizza, and 
It's a fun basement. <laughs> okay. Um, and how did you? You never got the money back from this distribution company. It went through the courts, right? Or? Um, we ended up getting a settlement of about fifteen cents on the dollar. Um, uh. It was pretty pathetic. Well, I gather that this wasn't an isolated case of a distribution company going bankrupt. It's happening a lot no, these this, days. It, it happened a lot, even when um, when record label when the music industry was healthy. You you still had a, one big company go bankrupt every year or two. Um, you just kind of have to expect it to happen. Is it happening more these days than it used to? Yeah, the the entire industry is kind of shrinking, and a lot of companies don't want to throw in the towel, so they're trying and trying and trying to survive and telling lying to everybody that they're doing well until out of nowhere they're suddenly completely out of money and just shut down. So can you tell us a bit about when when a distribution company shuts down how does that actually affect your business what happens and how do you cope with it? Well um, it means that the money that they owe us usually doesn't end up coming in so I have to explain to my bands um, hey so all that money that we just spent to make all those records and all those records we sold um we're not going to get anything out of that. That this really sucks, and uh, it's just uh, pretty terrible. Um, like right now, we we ended up signing with um, some two uh, much smaller distributors than anything that we've worked with in the past, just because they're really good people, and we know that they're gonna we get paid for it. But the flip side is that our records are not in anywhere nearly as many stores as they were before. And um, it's kind of frustrating for our bands to go on tour and go into stores and not see their record. But at least we're there's some revenue coming in for it. And it's also really cool that the the distributors we're working with are really respected within the punk rock community that we do stuff in. So the, the stores that really matter the most to us are still able to get our records and have them in stock. You're listening to Voicebox. You're listening to Voicebox with Chloe Veltman. In addition to hearing this show on air, you can revisit it anytime via our free weekly podcast series on iTunes. On tonight's show, I'm chatting with indie record label owners Peter Warshawski and Avi Ehrlich. The track we just heard from Peter's label, Porto Franco Records, was entitled Sing On, and it was by Gaucho, featuring the vocalist Tamar Korn. With that track, I'd like to take a step back from talking about things like videos and social media, which are relatively new modes for packaging and promoting artists that indie record labels are devoting a lot of time and attention to today. Let's spend some time talking about the importance of performing before live audiences, both at home and on tour. Now, Gaucho is interesting because that band has taken an intensely local approach to developing its fan base. Peter, can you tell us about Gaucho's strategy and how it helped your role working with the group? Well, the strategy has been completely local. They uh, started playing at a bar called Amnesia on Valencia Street about 10 years ago. And uh, uh, they started on Wednesdays. And uh, for 10 years now, every Wednesday, you can see them there. Um, I think it started as a small show, and now they pack the place um, every week. And uh, a lot of work has been coming from those gigs. They get in a lot of events, and uh, they're kind of becoming a local celebrity. 
um, and uh, the Amnesia show is free, but it that free show with dancers who come and dance and with people who come drink beer uh, kind of fostered a community around them. And how has that helped you in terms of what you're doing with the band? What we found is uh, Gaucho is possibly one of those bands that doesn't really need a record label uh, mm-hmm. because so much of what they do is built around, or actually so much of what is successful for them is built around what they already do. Mm-hmm. And uh, expanding that to a bigger business model uh, is very difficult because that would require uh, completely new areas of uh, activity, like touring, which is impossible if you have a weekly gig and if every one of your band members plays in other bands. Uh, and... Uh, uh, other approaches could be video production or um, social media, but the band is so busy with their local gigs that it kind of occupies a lot of their time. And so, um, yeah, they're kind of self-sufficient. Okay, so at this point, point you're a, a fan mainly. Uh, yeah, I mean, I still, you know, uh, I still am planning to do some videos for them. I'm hoping to help them promote the next record, which they're uh, putting out independently in about a month. Uh, but I just, yeah, I love coming to the show. I love dancing to their music, and uh, they're they're wonderful. So that's Amnesia on Wednesday nights for those listeners in the Bay Area. Eight to ten, it's free, and the beer selection is really good. <laughs> Fantastic. So, Avi and Peter, what role does touring play in the music landscape these days, and what do you do to help performers in this regard as record label owners? Wow, well, touring is absolutely vital, and not only that, but it's kind of the what what makes it really fun and it's kind of central to the whole lifestyle of, of being in a band and uh, making music kind of for our sort of demographic. And um, I would say it's it's super important because how else is someone, well, right now people can discover music on, on YouTube or Facebook or whatever, podcast or radio, but um, the primary way that people really connect with bands, I think, is by seeing a band live and then getting to meet the members and hang out with them and have a few beers at the club or whatever's going on. And um like for a band like Larry and his Flask, it, it's impressive that they have 18,000 fans on Facebook, but they've been touring nonstop for the past four or five years and playing shows almost every day. And if they don't have a show book, they find where the people hang out and just set up and play outside. And um, like that, that's actually how, how I discovered the band was they had a day off from tour and they went to the local bar, uh, the Argus, that used to be on, um, on Mission Street. And... Um, they were just performing acoustic in the back of the room and there was a crazy dance party happening around the pool table and I thought it was so much fun and uh, when the bartenders got sick of it and wanted to kick everyone out, um, we moved the party to my basement and that was my first time meeting the band. And um, and they do this everywhere and that's how they connected with those 18,000 Facebook fans was you know one fan at a time by playing shows and actually being there in person to make that connection. Your basement sounds extraordinary. Oh, it's it's not very big. <laughs> but a lot happens down there. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. I yeah. <laughs> so with all the social media helping to get music out to fans, no matter where in the world they are, and bands spending all this time on the road, how much does it matter where a band is physically located these days? Are there still cities where it's better to be if you want to make it as a musician? Um, I would say that it's uh, very helpful to be near a place that has a lot of music going on because, for example, if you live in the Bay Area, it's really easy to play shows in Santa Cruz or Berkeley or Oakland or, you know, Chico, Sacramento. Like, there's so many towns you can get to on a weekend road trip. Um, but if you if you're committed to the touring lifestyle, it doesn't matter if you're you're in Las Cruces, New Mexico, or what you you're gonna live in that van for two months, and that's just the decision that you make. 
I'm curious uh, with the, in regards to this, uh, with the move that Mark Grauder made fairly recently from the Bay Area to New Orleans, Peter, was that a good thing for him to do? Was that a wise decision? And does it even matter where he's living? Um, I don't think it matters that much. I think it was a really good decision because so much of his musical influences currently are New Orleans music, New Orleans R&B and uh, uh, the Delta Blues and um, the spirituals. And living in New Orleans, he's much closer to the culture. He can play with the people whose parents or grandparents were playing with Louis Armstrong and even like Buddy Bolden, uh, much earlier music. Uh, so musically, it's a really good move for him. And in terms of touring, he can get in the car and go anywhere he wants from anywhere he is. So that really doesn't change very much. Here's Mark Rowden with St. Judas. St. Judas, St. Judas, St. Judas You got a shot glass scar on your forehead You got holes in the soles of both of your boots You're a movie where the good guys are bad and the bad guys are good That was Mark Rowden with the track St. Judas. You're tuned into Voicebox and I'm Chloe Veltman. Tonight's discussion with the Bay Area-based indie record label owners Peter Warshawski and Avi Ehrlich is all about what companies like theirs are doing to rethink their business strategies in the shifting music marketplace. Now, one thing that I find fascinating and somewhat surprising about the indie music business right now is the popularity, the enduring popularity of good old-fashioned vinyl. Avi, what's that all about? Um, vinyl is a lot of fun. Um, it, it stands in contrast to a, a compact disc, which uh, at one point was the easiest way to listen to music when that was the technology. But now um, CD cases are just annoying. They, they break in your backpack and the discs get all scratched up and you don't have much room for artwork. And um, vinyl is kind of nostalgic, but it's really fun. And it, it's a big clunky thing that you own on purpose because you really want to own it. It's not a, a hindrance, I, I think. But what about MP3s? I mean, most people, I think, are listening to MP3s at this point, or, you know, digital formats, rather. Well, um, all of the vinyl that we release comes with an MP3 download coupon, so people can get the MP3s on their own, or they can buy the vinyl and get the MP3s along with it. So, in a way, you're catering to all kinds of musical tastes, all kinds of preferences for, for listening to music. You've got the kind of the collector's item of the vinyl, and you've also got the... Instant gratification, if you will, of the MP3. Yeah, of the download. Um, yeah, I, I want to make the music as easy to get for our fans as possible in whatever format it is that they enjoy. And our audience just isn't very interested in CDs. Okay. Well, <laughs> is this true just of the hardcore punk fans, or would you say that this business with vinyl is is across the board? I mean, Peter, are your are the fans of your artists are they mostly downloading music digitally? Do they want vinyl, or they're listening on CD? I would say we have uh, about half and half CDs and digital, and vinyl has actually not been very successful for us. Um, I think vinyl is a really, uh, it's a niche market for not just one niche, for a lot of niches, but still for fans who are really into owning something unique. And uh, a lot of music that we put out is, uh, it doesn't quite have uh, that fan culture around it. Avi, can you talk a little bit about Blank Fight? 
Uh, it's very interesting what you told me the other day about uh, the vinyl outpouring that you have with them. Okay, well, with the Blank Fight, uh, they were a band that features, uh, there's a, a notable Bay Area writer named Aaron Cometbus, who's very highly influential in the punk rock scene, and uh, and also members of a band called The Spike is a Pipe Bomb that was, was also pretty popular. And um, this was a, a very short-lived band from Pensacola, Florida, but they're really, really good. And a lot of people who, are, who follow these other bands in the community are aware of them and really excited about their existence. And... Um, for this record, we had it remastered for vinyl, um, so it, it would sound really good on vinyl. And um, being in a, uh, having the entire package inside of a, a record jacket um, meant that the we could put anything else in there that we wanted with the record. So we had Aaron Cometbus make a uh, a little zine that what comes with it that's um, would have been kind of difficult to do with a CD because it just wouldn't fit in the package. So yeah, it's just a, a fun, cool, big piece of art that you can listen to and sounds great, and it's just fun to own. Comet Bus is that his real name? Uh, it's it's his uh, it's what he goes by. I see, makes sense. Let's listen now to this bike and this guitar, a track by the Blank Fight. You're tuned in to Voice Box with me, Chloe Veltman. On tonight's show, I'm chatting about the highs and lows of running an indie record label with Peter Varshavsky of Porto Franco Records and Avi Ehrlich of Silver Sprocket. We just heard from The Blank Fight, a band on Avi's label. The track was This Bike and This Guitar. Now, the economics of what we've been talking about this evening are very challenging. Are you guys making any money these days? Um, I didn't make any money last year, but we also had two distribution companies go bankrupt. And um, it's really exciting right now to actually have a little bit of money in my pocket because uh, our new distributors, uh, Revolver, based in San Francisco, is actually paying us. And it's awesome. Thank you, Revolver. What about you, Peter? Oh, we're not making money, no. Um, when we started, the mission of the label was kind of to be the patron of the arts. And hopefully, business would come after that. And uh, we've been extremely successful as patron of the arts, but the business has not materialized. <laughs> so we're slowly closing down and kind of reimagining what we do. Wow, you're closing down and reimagining what you do. Um, does that mean that Porto Franco Records will cease to exist? Uh, you can still buy the records and you'll be able to buy them for a pretty long time. Uh, we will stop putting out new albums after September. Uh, we're going to put out one more by uh, Miklit Hadero and Quinn DeVoe. And uh, after that, I'm thinking that I'm going to have a jazz-only kind of EP label that is a mix between a label and a blog and a video series and a podcast and an online magazine and whatever else happens with it. Okay. And have you figured out what the business model for that's going to be? Uh, the business model is going to be raising money ahead of time to cover expenses, uh, probably on Kickstarter. And after that, uh, just doing it so part-time that we can make money uh, that I can just get a job and go to school. 
I have an interesting note on that, though. I think there's a, a really interesting precedent in independent music of zines kind of leading to record labels where somebody has a fanzine and then they start putting out seven inch records or EPs or whatever to support those bands. And then they accidentally have a record label going um, because they've like I think one of the, the biggest things a record label brings to the table is having an audience mm-hmm. and um, having an expertise and networking in a community. And uh, having a fan, having a zine or a blog is a really good way to be involved with that. Okay, so I mean, yeah, potentially you'll build the audience with a blog, and then it yeah, will, yeah, between the blog and the videos and the music, you'll have right. this wonderful web. And I'm also kind of narrowing down the stylistic uh, selection for the label. We started with having so many different things that it becomes very difficult to have mm. an attentive audience because you might have somebody who likes our singer-songwriters or somebody who likes our world music or somebody mm. who likes our avant-garde music. Uh, but if I try to kind of make it smaller, I think I'll be able to get uh, an audience to really follow us. I mean, yeah, do you think it's really important to, for a record label to be genre-specific, to, to have a very specific niche? I mean, you know, you have a fairly specific niche, Avi, and PC, you've gone the absolutely other route to have all this wonderful eclectic music now. As somebody who uh, runs a radio show, which is about as eclectic as it can possibly be, you know, we go from singing ventriloquists to the 19th century art song. So, I mean, I love that approach, but it's it's not working then? I think it's romantic. Uh, I wouldn't say it's impossible to make it work, but I haven't found a way to do that. Right. Yeah. Maybe voice box should just focus on one musical genre. Uh, no, I actually believe that if you're a media program or a curator, then you can do that because mm-hmm. people can come to you for uh, kind of a free podcast like, like Radiolab, mm-hmm. for example, hugely successful radio show, and they do everything. Right. But if true. you start trying to sell a physical product and you need to have an audience, I guess, People listen to talk radio in one way and music in another, mm-hmm. and they're more open when they listen to talk radio, and they go back to their comfort zone and their personal likes when they listen to music for pleasure. I'd just like to take a slight tangent, um, as we're talking a lot about economics. Um, the fact that music can be accessed by most listeners for free online is a reality that, of course, the whole industry is having to deal with right now. I'm curious about your strategies for dealing with this. Um, yeah, we we give away music by a, a, a pretty big handful of our bands for free on the internet, and we've we've never asked anybody to take music offline, but we don't actively give it all away ourselves. Um, for us, uh, I kind of, I mean, we, we definitely want to sell the records, and a lot of work and energy goes into the records to make them really beautiful and worth owning and not just frivolous pieces of plastic. But if somebody wants to just download the music for free, that's still fine with us. Um, we want the, the bands to be successful with whatever it is that means, and a... Uh, if, if they can su- survive selling concert tickets or T-shirts or whatever, um, that's totally fine with us. Like, whatever it is that works is cool.
Here on Voicebox with me, Chloe Veltman, we're talking about indie record labels. We just heard Minnesota Muse by The Pillow Fights, a punk band on the Silver Sprocket record label run by one of tonight's two guests, Avi Ehrlich. That band decided to give away its music for free, like many others these days. I'm in the studio also with Peter Warshawski of Porto Franco Records. So, Avi, one interesting thing you said recently was that a record is really a billboard for other sales. Can you expand on that, please? Um, yeah, sure. Well, it the, the record is something that we can sell and hopefully try to make money on. But if we don't, uh, there's still a lot of other revenue streams that an artist can use to survive. And that can include uh, concert tickets or T-shirts or even just asking for donations once in a while on a Kickstarter or something to, to fix a tour van or make a new record. How common is it for a band to make more money selling merchandise and other stuff than selling their actual music? It's probably genre specific, but for for us, it's very, very common. Um, T-shirts and other things definitely bring sell a lot more than records do. What about for your acts, Peter? Uh, I find that uh, we mostly sell music and uh, it's... A lot of what we do is jazz, and a jazz audience, I think, is an audience of music. It's not an audience of uh, that that has a culture of being the audience of that genre of this music. And you know, you cannot really look at somebody on the street and say, "Oh, yeah, they like John Coltrane." Mm-hmm. Very few people liking John Coltrane would be wearing t-shirt, <laughs> and so that really cuts off a lot of merchandise and options. Uh huh. When in terms of the merchandise that is purchased by uh, fans of of your bands, Avi, do you get a cut of that? Um, not explicitly, but we do come up with our own kind of weird, bad ideas, merchandise site things. Like if if we think of something that just sounds really fun to do and we approach the band and say like, hey, can we make pillowcases or magnet mm-hmm. poetry or whatever? We'll sell those things, but we're not we're not really organized as a big like clothing store or anything. But I, th- I think it's important to note, though, that the enemy, the, the enemy isn't piracy. It's obscurity. Like if if a band has an audience that cares about what they do, then they can find a way to make use of that audience to continue doing what they do. So I think it's better to give away the music for free and have an audience than to hoard the music and not have an audience because then you can't do anything with it. You liked it sweet, I remember With two sugars I am a happy baby to see you again Ah, ah, again, ah, ah, again Ah, 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 There are wrinkles when you smile I like rings I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox. We just heard the luscious Meklit Hadero with Float and Fall. Meklit is one of the artists that my guest Peter Warshawski helped to launch with his record label, Porto Franco Records. Peter, Meklit is a great indie record label success story. What can you tell us about this agile performer and how you worked with her to take her music and recognition to the next level? Meklit is one of those artists for whom it would have happened one way or another. I think we were just there at the right time, and uh, she is a magnetic performer and uh, uh, magnetic personality, and things would have coalesced around her anyway. Uh, Before she started working with us, she was um, 
an artistic director at the Red Poppy Art House, which is a wonderful local organization. And then she founded an organization that uh, took Ethiopian diaspora artists back to Ethiopia, and she got a TED fellowship based on that work. So her community was really thriving. And uh, I think what was a huge part of her success is that uh, artistic community that was really excited and supportive of her. So how do you find it to work with singers versus other kinds of musicians? Is it a different experience? I find that people are really open to the idea of a human voice. And so working with singers is easier than working with instrumentalists uh, because instrumental music is a bit more of a niche product versus uh, the vocal music that is universal. And if you look at pop music, you very rarely find anything instrumental. So a question for both of you. What skills would you say someone needs to successfully run an indie record label today? Being a stark raving lunatic. (laughs) Besides that? Um, I think the most interesting thing that you can do is actually find what skills you already have and then build a record label based on that rather Ah. than imagine what a record label should be and try to do that and ignore what you can actually do well. Um, Yeah, I would just say being organized and being honestly excited about things and following your gut with knowing that this is something that I really care about and I'm excited about, so other people probably will be too, but I'm not trying to kind of chase something because you think other people might be excited about it. So I've just one more question for you before we wrap up tonight's discussion. What advice do you have for musicians and perhaps for vocal artists in particular in terms of getting their music out to more people and perhaps even monetizing their work? Uh, My primary advice for every band that approaches me is don't wait around for someone to help you with anything. Just go out there and do it, whether that means uh, putting on shows like playing in a coffee shop or whatever, or putting out your own record or putting your songs online or going on tour. Just do it. And if you're doing a good job and people are excited about what you're doing, then other people will want to help you and take part in it. But don't don't just send your record out to a bunch of record labels or DJs or something and, and sit, sit at home waiting for something to happen because nothing's going to happen if you just sit around waiting for it. Anything you want to add, Peter? Uh, I completely agree. Um, I think that the best partnerships are kind of organic. They just happen. Uh, and uh, I also think that if you figure out how to promote yourself before you get a partnership with somebody who can really help you, you're going to be such a more valuable partner for them that you're also going to get a better deal from them. If you come to a record label saying, I have 20,000 fans on Facebook, I sold 5,000 copies of an EP that we recorded in my bedroom, you're going to get a better deal than if you come and say, hey, I have a very good record, but I don't know anything. Well, that's just about all we've got time for tonight. I'd like to thank my in-studio guests, Avi Ehrlich and Peter Warshawski, for being here. Peter and Avi, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. To find out more about the independent record labels run by tonight's guests, please visit portofrancorecords.com. That's P-O-R-T-O-F-R-A-N-C-O-R-E-C-O-R-D-S.com and silversprocket.net, S-I-L-V-E-R-S-P-R-O-C-K-E-T.net. Before we go, I'd like to tell you about an exciting live event that we have coming up on May the 16th at 50 Mason Social House, a great new venue in downtown San Francisco. Voicebox is teaming up with Dogfish Head Brewery, one of this country's foremost artisanal beer companies. Beer Cicerone Sayer Pietakowski and seven of the Bay Area's finest professional male singers to create an interactive evening around the theme of drinking songs from around the world.
Come and taste a range of limited edition dogfish head beers inspired by a variety of global brewing traditions. Hear songs that go with them and join in a live discussion about the ancient link between brewing and singing culture. For more information about this one-of-a-kind event, including how to buy tickets, please visit our website at voicebox-media.org. Voicebox is an independently produced non-profit project recorded at the studios of KALW in San Francisco. The series producer is Seth Samuel, the web editor is Victoria Lim and Sophia Vo is our development director. The project needs your support. Please help to keep us on the air by visiting voicebox-media.org and making a donation by clicking the support Voicebox box in the right nav. You can make a one-time donation or why not become a member of Voicebox by setting up an ongoing monthly pledge for as little as $5 a month. Either way, donating is safe, easy and tax deductible through our online PayPal link. We want to know what you think of us, so please friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, and you can write to us anytime you like at info at voicebox-media.org. And once again, don't forget about our free weekly podcasts on iTunes. Lastly, have a songful week.